1: Those of you uh, who haven't met me, those of you who do know me, I will try not to. I am actually a big cry baby. Uh, I cry on many uh, many occasions. I can't tell if it's uh, an endearing quality or just an irksome one. Uh, I'm not really certain. But I'm very appreciative of what uh, Emily said. Uh, I began my rabbinical studies uh, after having gone to both William and Mary and UVA. Then I lived in Israel for a while. I was in a program. talked to Shmuley about this today called the Teacher Corps. Uh, The federal government used to sponsor it. This was sponsored by the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I taught in an all-African-American school. I was already in my late 20s by the time I entered... uh, HUC, uh, the major reason, in part, well, not in part, the major reason that I actually went to the Hebrew Union College was to study with uh, Emily's grandfather. When I was a senior at William & Mary, I took a course in contemporary Christian thought by a scholar named James Livingston, and we read people like Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, uh, Hillard de Chardon, uh, and many, many others. And I found it the most compelling literature I'd ever read. And I was in my native Virginia, and I happened to be at a Greyhound bus station uh, in Lynchburg, uh, Kasmo kanehu which just like its name sounds. Uh, <laughs> And there I see a book, uh, a, layman's guide, a, a Jewish Layman's Guide to Religious Existentialism, written by Eugene Borowitz. Uh, and I thought, I actually want to study with this man. I could not believe that there was a Jewish participant in this religious dialogue that I found uh, so overwhelmingly compelling. Uh, I will not say that he and I agreed <clears throat> on every issue, but the power of his intellect and his personality was overwhelming. Uh, in the seminary that I attended, and Reverend, I don't know what it was like when you did your M.D. The professors uh, all called themselves doctor. And of course the line is that when rabbis <laughs> became doctors in the modern age, that's when Judaism became sick. Uh, laughter And in a school where everyone was doctor, Dr. Borowitz was really Rabbi Borowitz. Uh, He would always begin class with a blessing. Uh, To say that he possessed a powerful intellect would be really a mild understatement. The reality is that uh, Borowitz was without peer among liberal Jewish theologians in the 20th century. I mean, it isn't... uh, People always say, and I often get introduced as one of the great leaders, I always want to respond, well, who's greater? Uh, <laughs> but there are. But in the case of Rabbi Borowitz, there really wasn't anyone greater than he was. And the reality is that uh, I do feel as another chuliyas, another link in the Shalshelah to Kabbalah that Emily mentioned. And when I stepped down as president, because Dr. Borowitz was already... Uh, In his 90s, uh, frankly, he was unable to really teach this class in Jewish thought that he had taught for more than 40 years at the Hebrew Union College. Uh, So I was asked, actually, by Michael Marmer, with whom I wrote this recent book, who was in the Provost of HUC, would I assist Dr. Borowitz in the class? And, of course, I uh, responded affirmatively, uh, and it was... uh, a powerful intellectual experience teaching students like Rabbi Langowitz, but the reality is it was much more a uh, religious experience for me to be able to uh, teach with my teacher. Uh, in fact, it's hard for me to uh, grasp the fullness of what uh, that meant to me in a, a spiritual uh, or religious way. Uh, also, I won't really try to talk about all of the people here in the audience and I know many of you but I do see that Adam Bronfman is here and I did want to add a word that uh, his father was really one of the great leaders of the Jewish people in the 20th and 21st century and I often felt that uh, my relationship with him uh, enriched my life in ways, Adam, that I can't uh, fully describe one story I will tell uh, to the community, and maybe you'll appreciate this. When I first became president of Hebrew Union College, uh, Edgar Bronfman, Adam's father, dropped me a note and said, I'd like to meet you. And when I came in, we had lunch, and he said, I understand you were a student of Arthur Hertzberg's. And I was his student at uh, Columbia University, and he was another one of my major teachers. And Edgar Bronfman, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, Adam. Uh, Your father said, you know, Arthur Hertzberg is the smartest man in the world. And I went, well, Arthur Hertzberg is really smart. He said, I didn't say he was really smart. He's the smartest man in the world. So after the third time, I finally said, yes, he's the smartest man in the world. And then your father said, well, you know, of course, that means... uh, Arthur's only a 1,000th as smart as he thinks he is. Uh, And I thought, oh, you do know Dr. Hertzberg really uh, quite well. Uh, But in any event, all of that is a way of introduction. And I'm very, very happy to be here tonight. And now we really move to another uh, uh, completely different topic though related, namely the whole question of who is a Jew, identity, peoplehood, and conversion uh, in the modern age. I took 19th century rabbinic sources because uh, it sometimes makes a topic like this easier to talk about if you speak about it historically than if you speak about it completely in terms of the present. In other words, in the present, everybody has their own attitudes, and this is the kind of argument that Jews can... uh, fight with one another about. Uh, Sometimes I taught a class in this at Brandeis a couple years ago, and the class began with one of the students saying to me, well, who is a Jew? And I went, well, it depends on who you ask, and we'll see that there were numerous definitions. Uh, The community, the Jewish community, uh, it often surprises me the focus we have on this issue and the desire to create boundaries where I often think there's no need for it. I won't deal with this text tonight, But I'll mention to you that in the midst of the Civil War, this is what I really love about the Jewish people. Uh, You have what was called in my native Virginia the War Between the States, or it was even referred to as the War of Northern Aggression. Uh, (laughs) Millions of people are killing each other, but the Jews in New Orleans in 1864 know what they really need to fight about. Namely, there's a child born to a Jewish father and a non-Jewish mother and the question is should this child be circumcised in a religious ceremony or is the child a non-Jew because the child's born from a Jewish mother and not a Jewish father and therefore it would be a violation of classical halacha classical Jewish law to circumcise this child in a Jewish religious rite. I often think that here you have the desire of the father and the non-Jewish mother to bring the child into the Jewish community through a circumcision ceremony. But the community knows that this is a matter of tremendous, tremendous import, and people may be killing one another over issues of slavery, the economy, brother and sister fighting against one another, but the Jews know what's most important. Do we allow this child to be circumcised in a brit milah ceremony or not? The rabbi of the community at that point was a man named Bernard Illoui. He had been ordained at the yeshiva of the Khatam Sofer a very traditional rabbi in Germany or excuse me in uh, Hungary and he came to the United States and you can look at this in a couple of ways and again reverend you may be able to offer insight into this in 21 years he served nine congregations <laughs> so you could look at it in a couple of ways one is the first possibility is that he had so much Torah to teach that he just left every community after two years. The other possibility is that maybe he wasn't a very effective pulpit rabbi. But I think it was probably the former, not the latter. Uh, In any event, he ruled that it was forbidden for the moel, the ritual circumciser, to bring this child into the Jewish community. Um, And this is what's great about America. There were two mohalim and two ritual circumcisers in the community. One <coughs> ritual circumciser, one mohel, said, well, I can't do the circumcision and then the conversion of this child because the rabbi has forbidden me to do it. But there was another one, Mr. Goldenberg, who said, who cares what the rabbi says? I'm going to do <laughs> the circumcision. That's what it means to lack coercive legal authority, and this really brings me to the topic tonight because when we want to talk about issues of who is a Jew, it has to be seen against a larger backdrop of what it is that's occurred to the Jewish community in the 19th, 20th, and 21st century in America. In a moment, I'll look at the sources, but I'd like you to pay attention, if I can keep your interest going for 25 to 30 minutes while I talk about some of the history and some of the rules involved in this whole question. One, you have to understand that there were radical changes that the Jewish community underwent uh, as it moved from the Middle Ages to modernity. Uh, There were changes. Let me just turn this off. Some of you know my daughter Ruthie, who's a writer. She is in Washington, D.C. today working for a senator's communications office. She's a writer in relationship to the, uh, there's something going on in Washington. Oh, yeah. It's an impeachment. It's an impeachment. So she keeps writing all day. And it's lovely, telling us everything that's occurring. Uh, She's sitting right opposite of Chief Justice uh, Roberts, well, opposite, opposite in the gallery. Uh, So I want to say there were changes that transformed the nature of Jewish life, religiously, socially, culturally, and finally, politically. So let me talk about the cultural change. With the advent of the modern world in Germany and later in America, Jews came to know more about non-Jewish culture than Jewish culture. I am not attempting to be critical. This is just a fact. I said, if I began to speak in Hebrew right now, my bet is that most of you in this community would not know what it is that I'm saying. It's not meant to be critical, it's just to say that most Jews in the modern world do not know a Jewish language. They don't know Yiddish, they don't know Ladino, and they don't know uh, Hebrew. It's not anyone's fault, it's just a fact. What begins to happen with Jews in the modern world is they begin to acculturate, and they know far more about non-Jewish culture than they know about Jewish culture. Again it's not meant to be critical, but you have a cultural transformation. This is not unprecedented in Jewish history. We had a Hellenistic period around the time that Jesus lived. Jews have often been acculturated into the larger world. Jews in the Arabic-speaking world in the Middle Ages often spoke Arabic, not Hebrew. Well, Hebrew wasn't even a spoken language. It was like Latin in the church. Uh, Wasn't really a language used for daily communication. And Jews often in the uh, Muslim world spoke Arabic and no other language. So again, but culturally, Jews begin to know more about non-Jewish than Jewish culture. If I were to ask you to identify LeBron James or the Tanaim, most of you would probably be able to identify LeBron James, and many of you would say, oh, the Tanaim, they must be a Czech band. a rock band, but they were really the rabbis of the first to third centuries. So culturally, Jewish life begins to change. Jews begin to know more about non-Jewish than Jewish culture. Again, nothing novel in Jewish history. The late Gershon Cohen, the head of the Jewish Theological Seminary, once wrote an article, The Blessing of Assimilation in Jewish History. Jews begin to understand the culture in which they live or their own religion in light of values taken from the larger culture. So you begin to get cultural kinds of changes. In addition to cultural changes, uh, you begin to get religious changes. Classical rabbinic Judaism rests on the notion that God revealed all of the Torah, written and oral, what Christians would call the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, was revealed by God to Moses and the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, what we Jews call the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. But in addition, God gave or inspired Torah Al Peh, the oral law of our people, the Mishnah, the Gomorrah, the Talmuds of Jerusalem and Babylonia. Uh, all of these were revealed by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. When I was a boy... Growing up in the Orthodox congregation I did, we actually had to recite a catechism. I'll call it a catechism. That word wasn't used, but it was a catechism before we would study religious text. And we would say, Reishit kol tzerich ladad shakola <speaking> torah kula, bein sheb <Hebrew> ikhtav, bein sheb alpeh, nitnameh ha-kadosh baruchu atzmo al-yadeh alava shalom b'har sinai, y'afshara shanot afilu echad. So now you know I'm a rabbi. That's the last Hebrew tonight. <laughs> First thing you need to know is that all of the Torah written and oral was given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. It is impossible to change even a single jot or tittle, neither to be lenient nor to be stringent. Classical rabbinic Judaism rests on the notion of the divinity of the oral law. A man named Spinoza comes along in the 17th century. And what does Spinoza say? Who does Spinoza say wrote the Bible? Did God write the Bible according to Spinoza? Who wrote the Bible? Was it men or women? (laughs) So, for example, you have classical rules in Judaism. And note, this is what it means. I wrote my first book on a rabbi whose name should be a household one for all of you, Rabbi Azriel Hildesheimer. Before he became a street in Germany, or in uh, Jerusalem, he was a rabbi in Germany. Rabbi Hildesheimer was once asked, why is it that women can't be witnesses at Jewish legal proceedings? In other words, women, for example, aren't permitted to uh, serve as witnesses at weddings, at divorces. And according to Rabbi Hildesheimer, He said, it actually doesn't make any sense to me that women cannot do this. Women are as bright as men. They are as capable as men. I actually don't understand why this is forbidden. Why might you think Jewish religious tradition forbids it? What are the possibilities? Why would it be forbidden in a patriarchally dominated culture? Right, I lied when I said I wouldn't cite Hebrew again. Women are exempt from positive time-bound commandments. Why are they exempt from them? Because what's the role a woman should play? What? She should be in the home. In other words, classical rabbinic tradition, this will shock you, does not affirm a notion of uh, gender equality. Aren't you glad you came tonight? You wouldn't have known this if I hadn't told you. Namely, classical rabbinic tradition affirms a notion or reserves positions of public status and authority to men, and it gives positions of domestic honor to women. I'm trying to state it as positively as I can. (laughs) The key element is, so why is that the case? Well, the reality is, in a patriarchal culture, there's nothing unusual about that. So Rabbi Hildesheimer could say, well, it was the result of a patriarchy. I would say that. But what is the other possibility? What do you think Rabbi Hildesheimer says? Why do you think he says, but a woman, I don't know why they can't, but they can't sign a ketubah, a Jewish wedding contract. Why? Because that's what it says in the Talmud. Good, because God commanded it. It is, to quote the German, it is a Gottesgebot. It is God's commandment. Part of what I want you to see that occurs with the advent of the modern world is that the belief in classical, of classical rabbinic Judaism that the written and oral law were given literally by God to Moses and the Jewish people at Mount Sinai comes to be rejected by the overwhelming majority of Jews in the modern world. There actually are Jews, for example, who don't always eat kosher food. There are Jews who ride on the Sabbath, who turn lights on on the Sabbath. I'm sure, again, you've never met a Jew who did any of these things. But part of the reality that you have to recognize is that you have the rise, then, of liberal religious movements. This have been the ongoing debates in which Jews have engaged religiously for over 300 years. But what becomes important is that culturally, Jews come to know more about non-Jewish culture than Jewish culture, and religiously, you begin to get a community that is highly pluralistic religiously. Again, in the past, you had Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes. You had Rabbinites and Karaites in the Middle Ages. It's not the only time in Jewish history where this has occurred, but it's important to note you begin to get religious differences among Jews, but there is one thing about the advent of the modern world that is completely unique. Jews come to be politically emancipated. You have the French and American revolutions. The French Revolution comes to be a genuine revolution when the estates are dissolved, or what occurs in the transformation of Europe from medieval to modern society. The idea comes to be put forth that people have individual rights In fact, they're endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. And what this means is that for the first time in Jewish history, the Jewish community no longer possesses coercive political power. There is a distinction here between influential authority. Presumably, those of you who belong to synagogues, your rabbis have influential authority. They say something, you believe certain things, And when they say things, on occasion, you might even listen to them, (laughs) on occasion. But the reality is they have to put forth good reasons. For someone like my father, raised as a child of immigrants to America, when I used to ask him about the United Jewish Appeal, he would simply say, that's a Jewish tax. In other words, to ask my father, the child of immigrants, are you going to give to the United Jewish Appeal? Are you going to belong to a synagogue? Are you going to give money to the Jewish community center? It would be like asking him, do you plan on breathing today? He didn't understand that there was even any choice about these things, because he had internalized certain communal norms and views. And this had led him to think of these communal norms as absolute and significant ways. But the reality is the Jewish community became a voluntaristic community. For the first time in history, Jews become individual citizens of modern nation states. So if you leave this building tonight and you break a law when you are driving, which we all hope will not happen, if when the officer is arresting you or pulling you over, you say to the officer, oh, but officer, I'm Jewish. The officer might say, if she or he were here, oh, you're saying that because he listened to David Ellinson tonight. <coughs> but you've misunderstood him. It is true that in the Middle Ages, if you as a Jew, if you as a Jew had violated a law, the court you would go to would be a Jewish court. The Jewish community had coercive legal authority at its disposal." But in the world we live in today, if you want to, you can go back to the rabbi and have the rabbi convene a rabbinical court, if that's what you wish. But in the meantime, you have to also pay your fine, are we in the city of Scottsdale in the state of Arizona? You have no choice about that. I can tell you as a Jewish leader, you have an obligation to give to the United Jewish Appeal. But come April 15th, I can't compel you to do it. Try not to pay your income tax and see what will happen. That's the difference between coercive and voluntaristic or influential authority. Once the French Revolution becomes a real revolution, when the estates are dissolved, when the estates are dissolved, it's saying theoretically, one person, one vote. And Jews become individual citizens of modern nation states, and the modern nation state is born, however imperfectly it comes to be realized. But the idea is there, and there's an inherent logic. Once the Jewish community is transformed culturally, religiously, and politically, Jews are now individual citizens of modern nation states. They have more in common with their non-Jewish surroundings, then they are informed by their Jewish religious tradition. Doesn't mean they don't identify as Jews. They may continue. We do continue to do that. And religiously, you no longer believe that the written and oral law are given literally by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. In every Western country where Jews have lived, and now I'll get to the point, every Western country, meaning Germany, France, England, and the United States, by the third generation, after this process has taken place, there comes to be a social change. The social change is that by the third generation, minimally, a third of the Jewish community marry people who were born non-Jewish. For there to be a high rate of intermarriage, and I mentioned this earlier to a group, to the group that was here, for any minority group, for there to be a high rate of exogamy, I might as well show you here, I did a doctorate at Columbia in sociology. (laughs) We can't just say intermarriage, exogamy. For any group, minority group to have a high rate of exogamy, two variables need to be present. One, members of the minority group, have to be thoroughly acculturated into the mores of the majority. And two, the majority has to view members of the minority group as worthy or acceptable marriage partners. There is one group in America today that has a higher rate of intermarriage than Jews. Anyone know? One minority group in America today has even a higher rate of intermarriage than Jews have. Indian Hindus. Hindus. Indian Hindus intermarry in the United States at almost a 90% intermarriage rate. When Indian families come to America, they acculturate so quickly that almost nine out of ten of them marry people who are not Indian Hindus. They are the only minority group I'm aware of that has a higher rate, a higher rate of intermarriage than Jews do. But you begin to see this in the United States, and now I want to speak as a sociologist. Prior to 1960, there was almost no Jewish intermarriage in America. Doesn't mean there was none, but from a sociological perspective, if you come from a family where there was intermarriage and you're Jewish prior to 1960, you were sociologically non-normative. In fact, the way sociologists use the term, that would be considered, in quotes, a deviant social act. Deviance here doesn't mean, as sociologists use the term, inherently anything (laughs) deviant in it, just means it wasn't the norm. People like my grandparents, all four of them, moved to America. Until they died, the language they spoke, they really spoke Yiddish. To me, they spoke what I'd call Yinglish. Namely, it was an admixture of Yiddish and English. Generally, when people marry one another, generally, they speak the same language. Although, if we got into issues here of counseling people, uh, you sometimes wonder what people, how they hear. Uh, In my own family with my wife, her greatest line to me always is, if we have... A dispute which occurs from time to time. Uh, she'll say to me, "Well, David, we're at a point where we have a choice. You can either continue to be right, or we can have a relationship." Uh, <laughs> and at that point, I know to quote the Talmud, love." I've gone as far as this argument will uh, will take me. Uh, I generally have opted to keep a relationship <laughs> in, those, in those cases. Um, so those immigrants did not marry amongst one another. People like my parents, the children of immigrants, tend to be raised with cultural taboos that minority groups have that frown upon marrying people from other groups. In general, Children of immigrants, in general, do not marry at a high rate. But why else wouldn't they marry? Think of the United States in the 40s and 50s. Why else wouldn't there have been a high intermarriage rate for Jews? It isn't only because the community frowned upon it, but what else was true? Yeah, namely, there was what I would call now social anti-Semitism. I mean... Think of movies with Natalie Wood and others. In other words, in general, Jews were not deemed to be worthy marriage partners. That changes. In the 1970 population study, almost 30% of Jews in America who married between 1960 and 1970, this means the grandchildren of immigrants to this country, began to marry non-Jewish people. By the time you get to a 30% intermarriage rate, From a sociological perspective, it's no longer a deviant act. It now has become much more normative. The way that changes is by 1990 in the National Jewish Population Study, does anyone know what the intermarriage rate was then? 52%. When you have a 52% intermarriage rate, as sociologists count it, it means two-thirds of your families are intermarried two Jews marry one another, two born Jews, they are one couple this Jew marries someone born non-Jewish, this Jew marries someone born non-Jewish, two thirds of your families are non-Jewish when you hit a 50% intermarriage rate now keep in mind that just because people intermarry it doesn't mean they leave the community what's possible, what might the non-Jew do Convert, and what else is possible? What else might be true with the non-Jew, even if they don't convert? They might be happy to raise their child as a Jew, and I'll get to that in a moment. By 2013, the intermarriage rate of American Jews, according to the Pew study, between 2001 and 2013, 80% of children born in reformed Jewish households married people born non-Jewish. And in conservative Jewish households, it's over 60%. So almost 70% of non-Orthodox Jews in America, between 2001 and 2013, are married to people born non-Jewish. I don't know the statistics here, Emily, but if this congregation is typical in any way of reform congregations in America, approximately 80% of your religious school students should have non-Jewish grandparents, aunts, and uncles. I don't know if that's true or not, but it would be sociologically expected from these figures. Do you even have any idea? I don't. Don't. So part of what you need to note is when the question comes to be, who is a Jew, then the question is asked, well, who is a Jew? And there's a gigantic debate among American Jewish sociologists on how many Jews are there. And the numbers range anywhere from 5 million to almost 8 million. And this is how it (laughs) depends how you count it. When people are asked, are you Jewish? And what is your religion? 4.2 4.2 million people answer, I am Jewish, and my religion is Judaism. 1.2 million people answer, I am Jewish, and I have no religion whatsoever. There are another million people who answer, I am Jewish, but my religion is Christianity, Hinduism, I'll ask Rabbi Yankiewicz later what he thinks of this. Jews don't always like this. Rabbis really don't like it. But that is a reality of the world. That's a sociological reality. And there are close to 2 million people who are non-Jewish, who are married to Jews or have Jewish children or stepchildren. That's why when the question is asked how many Jews there are in America, it's anywhere from five something million to almost eight or nine million, and a great deal depends on how it is you look at these kinds of uh, how you look at these kinds of issues. But the reality is, if I were to again state it in academic terms or academic parlance, the Jewish community previously was one that displayed a high degree of ethnic homogeneity. That is to say, Jews married other Jews. Today we have an ethnically heterogeneous Jewish population. An ethnically heterogeneous population, but what you need to keep in mind is the Jews intermarry and they still continue to want to be part of the Jewish people. And that is really the most significant element. If Jews intermarried and left the Jewish community you would not have a debate over an issue like patrilineal descent. It's precisely because Jews intermarry and still want to participate in the community that Jewish fathers, sometimes married to non-Jewish mothers, want their children to still be considered Jewish. But it's precisely because they want, they want to be part of the community. The question is, what should the policy of the community be in relationship to this? Look, I won't keep you in suspense. I'm a Reform rabbi. You probably know where I stand on these issues but I want to at least present this in an academic form. So what I have before you today are just this source, and it goes back to the 19th century when these questions were first asked. First, there is a rabbi named Jacob Etlinger. And by the way, I have made an assumption tonight that all of you know that classical halakha or Jewish law asserts that someone is a Jew when they are born of a Jewish mother. Judaism has a status definition or another way to put it would be from an academic perspective classical rabbinic Judaism has a birth dogma. Namely you are Jewish if you were born if you entered the world through a Jewish womb, you are Jewish. It has nothing to do with voluntarism, affirmation it is a status definition it has nothing to do even with your own identity. If you were born of a Jewish mother from the standpoint of halacha or Jewish law, you are considered to be, from an orthodox standpoint, a Jew.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning.
1: This began to change, of course, when the Reform and Reconstructionist movements adopted patrilineal uh, descent uh, as a possible way for someone to be considered a Jew. But classically, halakha requires someone to be born of a Jewish mother to be considered Jewish, or you can convert to Judaism. That is the other, the other possibility. In general, and speak to your local Orthodox rabbi about this, in general, halacha has three requirements when you uh, convert. Uh, two are ritual requirements. One is immersion in a mikvah or ritual bath, baptism. And the other, if you're a male, you either have to be ritually circumcised or if you were already circumcised, what's required is hatafat dam brit, literally a drop of blood needs to be drawn from the penis it is the blood of the covenant so there are two ritual requirements and and this is very debatable there needs to be either kabbalat ol mitzvot or hoda'at hamitzvot kabbalat ol mitzvot means you accept the yoke of all the commandments or hoda'at hamitzvot means simply that you need to be informed of the commandments, but you don't necessarily need to accept them all. And there's a gigantic debate. And the classical text in the Talmud that deals with conversion says that when a person converts, they should be informed miksat mitzvot hamarot, miksat mitzvot kalot. They should simply be educated in some of the major and some of the minor commandments. And I didn't bring the text, but... What would you think the major commandments are? What do you think this text says? Well, you would think maybe the Ten Commandments. The reality is the text doesn't say. text doesn't indicate what's major or what's minor. Uh, As a result, there is a tremendous debate in the Talmud and in later rabbinic sources, does a person who converts to Judaism, are they required to observe the commandments? Or is it simply enough to educate them and inform them of it? The reality is most Orthodox rabbis are stringent on this issue and demand observance. But the halakha itself is much more ambivalent. And this brings me then to Rabbi Jacob Ettlinger who lived from 1798 to 1871. His book of response is called the Binyan Sion. Rabbi Ettlinger was the rabbi in Altona. And both Rabbi Yanklowitz and Rabbi... uh, Langowitz have made reference I'll just say Emily and Schmuly. it's hard to get all the last names have alluded to this well I think I can say this I am probably North America's greatest expert in the uh, history of Orthodox Judaism in Germany in the 19th century one reason I can say it is that I may be the only one who uh, may not be the only one who studies it but close to it. I live with these people. These are really my friends. I read them all the time. Rabbi Ellinger was the rabbi in Altona. He becomes very important. Among other things he uh, ordained a rabbi named Samson Raphael Hirsch and he ordained a rabbi named Osriel Hildesheimer who I'll talk more about in a moment. Rabbi Ellinger is asked, can you in fact convert someone to Judaism who is marrying a non-Jew when it's likely that the non-Jew will not become religiously observant. And this is what he writes. There is reason to rule favorably, assess favorably, those rabbis who a priori rule leniently as this matter, on this matter in our country and who permit a Jewish man to marry a non-Jewish woman even though I am personally not comfortable with this ruling. In other words, Rabbi Etlinger, when he's asked, says, I don't like it when there's an intermarriage, and I personally won't permit it. But if there are rabbis who will permit it, it is halachically permissible. And he says, I was asked about it, and once I... I said I forbid it, once it was known that she was converting for the sake of marriage... There is a rule in the Shulchan Oruch Yoradea, the classical code of Jewish law, that says you cannot convert l'shem devar. You cannot convert for an ulterior motive. In other words, if you convert, it cannot be for an ulterior motive like that of marrying a Jew. If a person wants to marry a Jew, and that's why they want to convert, you cannot convert then the Judaism according to this rule in the Shulchan Oruch, the 16th century code of Jewish law. Why would that be problematic in the world in which we live? What? Yeah, because the reality is that virtually probably 90% of conversions in America do take place, or in Germany, because a non-Jew met a Jew and they wanted to get married, and it would mean there'd be virtually no conversion whatsoever. So I want you to understand that in general the rule in the Talmud is A conversion for the sake of marriage is forbidden. But then he cites two stories. So first, there's a story in uh, Shabbat 31a, when Rabbi Yanklowitz spoke, Shmuley spoke earlier and quoted Kiddushin 40. I thought, who's going to run out and check it now to be sure that he did it right? But I promise you, if you if you look in the Talmud in Shabbat 31a, you'll see this story about Hillel. So here's a story. A man comes first to Shammai, who was Hillel's great opponent, and says, I'll convert on the condition that you make me the high priest. So what do you think Shammai does? He has an ulterior motive. He said, I like the garb this guy wears. I want to get his outfit. And he says, forget it. It's like... When I became president of Hebrew Union, they gave me a big robe with all sorts of uh, fancy stripes. I thought, oh, that was nice. Uh, Kind of made me, you know, some incentive to be president. Not much of one, but some. Um, He then goes to Hillel, and Hillel does convert him. What's problematic about that? Because what's the rule? Why does the guy want to convert? Yeah, he has an ulterior motive. Therefore, what should Hillel have done? He should have done what Shammai did, but he did convert him. Then you have in Menachot 44, my favorite story in all, well, favorite, one of my favorites in all of Talmudic literature. There is a woman who is a prostitute, and she is considered to be the most beautiful woman in the world. Talmud has a lot of interesting stories. And there is a student of a great rabbinic authority named Rabbi Chia. He sees this woman and wants to sleep with her. And he climbs up into her bed. And as he climbs up and is about to pay her in order to sleep with her, his tzitzas, his ritual fringes, (laughs) come up and they hit him in the face. And you'll remember the passage in the daily prayers, <laughs> you shouldn't follow the lust of your eyes or after your wandering eyes, that sits us, hit him in the face, the ritual fringes and he goes, I can't do this, this would be a sin. The woman says to him, is there something about me that looks unappealing to you? He says, no, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. I'm a heterosexual. I'm a cisgender male. I don't know. (laughs) He probably didn't use that exact word, but my children try to teach me all this language, and I'm doing my best. But he said, I can't do this. The next day, she goes to Rabbi Chia, his teacher, said, I've never had a man refuse to sleep with me. This man is one in a jillion. Please convert me to Judaism so that I can marry him. And she converts, and then they get married. And the Talmud comments the pleasure he would have had illicitly he now enjoyed uh, through the blessing of uh, chuppah, of uh, of an acceptable Jewish uh, wedding. So, what seems to be problematic here? <laughs> they seem to be violating the rules of the Talmud. So here's what happens: a principle emerges. Hakola fira ute nehabed din. Everything depends on the judgment of the rabbinic court. In other words, you can't escape making judgments. If the rabbinic court determines that it is in the best interest of the Jewish people to bring these people in instead of pushing them away, then it is permissible to do so. Part of what I want you to understand is that halakha or Jewish law has both these options. You could be very stringent or you can be uh, very lenient on these issues. Some of you may know Daniel Gordas. Danny actually was my doctoral student at USC he and I wrote a book another very popular bestseller uh, published by Stanford University Press and I can't even remember the whole name of the book but it's something like Pledges of Jewish Allegiance I don't know Rules, Laws and Policy Making in Orthodox Rabbinic Writings on Conversion and Intermarriage but it's published by Stanford Press and it's a it's a hot book, if you're interested in this topic. <laughs> Some of you... How many of you here know my daughter Ruth, who did the modern Jew... Ruthie did a book, The Modern Jewish Girl's Guide to Guilt. When my mother read my first books and articles, one of my big books and articles was on the response of the Hungarian Orthodox rabbinate to apostasy in the 1860s. <laughs> and my mother looked at this article, and only the way a mother could who loves her child, she read about the first paragraph or two when she said, a lot of people don't read this, do they? (laughs) I said, well, no, they don't. But I said, if you are interested in this topic, it will be read for 100 years by two people a year because no one else is likely to write on this topic. And Shmuley, I'm sure you could attest to that. Uh, said, why don't you do what Ruthie does and write a popular book? That would be, so I think Ruthie's book sold over 100,000 copies, The Modern Jewish Girl's Guide to Guilt. One of my books sold 900 copies which <laughs> was considered a bestseller in the <laughs> academic uh, the academic world but I enjoy it so it's all right. In this book what we showed is there are these different ways then of viewing it but here's the key point. Whenever you read rabbinic legal writings responsa on this issue if the rabbi cites the phrase hakol etu e nehabed din everything depends upon the subjective judgment of the court, they always permit the conversion. And if they cite the text that says you can't convert for an ulterior motive, they never permit the conversion. So what you need to note is that what's interesting about Rabbi Ellinger, and this is where he's extremely honest, he says both of these are legitimate views within Jewish religious tradition. So now we move to the views of his student, Rabbi Osriel Hildesheimer, lived from 1820 to 1899. Again, another best-selling book that I wrote is entitled Rabbi Osriel Hildesheimer and the Creation of a Modern Jewish Orthodoxy. Rabbi Hildesheimer was the, one of the very first Orthodox rabbis to also receive a PhD from a German university. I mentioned to Shmuley today, he received his doctorate at the University of Halle. Anybody recognize where Halle was in the news in Germany recently? It was where there was the murder during uh, Yom Kippur this year, the shooting. It was in that town that Rabbi Hildesheimer received his doctorate in the 1840s. Here, Rabbi Hildesheimer has asked the question, there's a Jewish woman who's become impregnated by her non-Jewish spouse the guy isn't likely to be observant the girl's less than 18 she needs the father's permission in order to marry this man the man says he'll convert but no one's observant Uh, the rabbi then says to him should I do the conversion or not and if you look at the paragraph at the bottom and this is interesting the rabbi says to his teacher, Rabbi Hildesheimer, if I refuse to convert him, <coughs> they're going to go to echad me they're going to go to one of those new rabbis who will do the conversion. Who does that mean? They're going to go to reform rabbis and they're going to leave the orthodox community altogether. question is, should I do the conversion or not? And now look on the next page. Rabbi Hildesheimer writes, your question is among the most difficult of our age. The answer depends upon Shekul Hadad. In other words, Rabbi Hildesheimer is aware Rabbi Hildesheimer is aware that Jewish law can permit a stringent or a lenient position on this question of converting people and bringing them in. And Rabbi Hildesheimer basically says in the end, even though you could say it's permissible, even though you could say it's permissible, he said, I absolutely, uh, I absolutely uh, forbid it. And then in a line at the bottom, uh, he says, and if the father of the young woman goes to another rabbi, It, it's, the odds are like drawing a hair out of milk as to whether this couple would ever, be, uh, would ever be observant. Is not a conversion conducted without circumcision or immersion null and void? Who would tell us what we should do? And now here's the answer he gives. And these are really chilling Hebrew words to me. Now I'm not speaking as an academic, but I'm revealing my own views. He says, we should refuse to circumcise and convert such a person. Anu et Nafshenu Hitzalnu. We, the rabbis, need to save our own souls. I often used to say to my students before I ordained them, your job is not principally to save your own soul. As a boy, I had many rabbis who loved Judaism. They frankly just did not love Jews because Jews were not particularly religiously observant. And I actually think that the task of a rabbi is to understand or administer what the sources of a tradition say so that you can give zechut, you can give merit to the people or the community that you serve. Zekui harabim is the Hebrew phrase. But for Rabbi Hildesheimer, I will play, God forbid, no part in such a conversion. His own student, then Rabbi David Hoffman, responds to this. And basically, Rabbi Hoffman deals with this in a number of places. He lives from 1843 to 1921. He is an Orthodox rabbi. He would prefer that everybody be religiously observant. But he said, What are you going to do? They're not. And he said the obligation of the community then is to perform the conversion. He says, look, what these people want to do in this case is good. They want to bring their children into the community. They want to identify as Jews. I'm not happy about all of this intermarriage. But what we need to do in this situation is to preserve the Jewish people. As my friend Danny Gordas put it, he believed in what we would call sociologically constituency retention. Namely, the principles of the tradition can be applied in a way to bring them in. And what we should try to do is to bring these people into the Jewish community. Let me conclude then by going back to this Rabbi Kalisher that I mentioned, uh, who dealt with the question then of these Jews in New Orleans who had intermarried and in bringing their children in. Rabbi Illoui, who I mentioned at the very beginning of the lecture, forbade it. Said you can't circumcise these children, but he wrote a letter to rabbis in Europe asking their opinion. And one of the rabbis who answered was a rabbi named Svi Hirsch Kalisher. Rabbi Kalisher lived from 1795 to 1874 in Posen. And the interesting thing about Rabbi Kalisher's answer, he said, not only is it permissible to circumcise these children, it's a mitzvah to do so. And he made the argument on several grounds. First, he said, children born to non-Jewish fathers to Jewish fathers and non-Jewish mothers may not technically be halakhically Jewish, but they are, and this is his word, zerah kodesh. They are quite literally holy seed. In other words, in general, Judaism looks at these things as if it were a binary. You're either in or you're out. Rabbi Kalasham wants to say, well, there's actually a middle ground here. The children may not be technically halachically Jewish, but they are Zerah Kodesh. They are the offspring of Jews. In addition, he says, look at the story in the Bible. Go back to Genesis where God says to Abraham about Ishmael, this boy Ishmael is your seed. He uses that he doesn't, I don't want to make him into Alexander Schindler. He is not a reform rabbi, Rabbi Kalisher. Rabbi Kalisher is a very orthodox rabbi, but he wants to say these children are holy offspring. And then he makes several more observations. You don't want to convert them because people, they're not likely to be observant. He then says, Have you looked around the world we've lived in? He said, in case you don't know it, most Jews are not particularly observant. If we don't bring these children in, we're going to push them away with both hands from the community of Israel. And about these children and their fathers, he makes two observations. One is, he says, from these children, who knows? Who knows? Great leaders of the Jewish people may spring from these children. I will tell you, when I teach, I try to keep that line in mind with every single person I teach and every single person I meet. How is it you know who that person is and what teaching they're going to take from you and what the impact of that will be on their life? What if with every person you met, you thought there's a possibility that given my actions... This person could turn out to be a great leader of the Jewish people and humanity. And then with the fathers, he's not a reformed Jew in 2020. He calls the fathers posh'im. They are sinners. They have married non-Jews. He is not a liberal rabbi. But he says, what the fathers want to do here by bringing their families into the community, that's good. And the mothers, by permitting it, are also helping to foster the community. And he says, Sometimes people who commit sins in one occasion can perform mitzvot, good deeds, commandments that are as plentiful as the seeds in a pomegranate. And that the task of the rabbi is how is it you behave towards your parishioners towards your congregants so that in the end you have them act in positive and not negative ways in the world. I always remember the movie Crash that was done, I don't know, a decade or more ago. Any of you see this movie? So the interesting thing about Crash is everyone in the movie performs a heinous act that is completely, completely despicable. Seemingly beyond redemption. Horrible, horrible deeds. And then these same people in another part of the movie perform deeds that make them more heroic than an angel. And I've always thought that we do, particularly in our day, try to live in a world that is completely black and white. But the reality is that maybe life is lived in more gray zones. And thus, when we come to who is a Jew and the nature of the Jewish community today... I failed to see, and now I am speaking as a reform rabbi, there's no question about that. I'm not going to purport to be an academic, I will be normative at this point. I failed to see what we get by adopting a stringent position on these issues. The other night I saw on TV uh, Secretary, former Senator William Cohan from Maine, how many of you know, remember him? When Alexander Schindler announced the policy on patrilineal descent for the reform movement, then-Senator Cohen wrote a letter to uh, Rabbi Schindler, said, if this had been the rule when I was a boy, I'd be a Jew and not an Episcopalian. I was supposed to become bar mitzvah in Bangor, Maine, and the rabbi of the community forbade me from being bar mitzvah because my mother was not Jewish. My father was, so my father just took me out of the synagogue and brought me uh, brought me to the church and I was raised then as an Episcopalian. Uh, I don't know how you all view that but from my point of view the Jewish community lost someone who would have been a valued member of our community and if there had been a greater degree of leniency displayed towards him uh, he might well have identified uh, as a Jew. I want to really thank all of you for listening. I don't know if we have any time for questions or comments but... Thank you, and I hope I've been able to present this issue in a broad way to you tonight, so thank you.
0: Thank you so much. That was um, uh, inspiring and broad and, and educational for all of us, I'm sure. We want to take 10 minutes, about 10 minutes for questions. I will walk around the mic, so feel free to raise your hand. And is it OK if folks ask questions off topic as well? OK. That's okay.
1: As yeah. long as you and Rabbi Langowitz answer them, they can ask whatever they want. I'm
0: just you to questions instead of statements. Yeah. I have a question. Uh, as the leader of the institution
1: that ordains rabbis, what steps does the institution take to confirm the Jewishness of the applicants to be accepted in your institution? Huh. To confirm the Jewishness of them, i I have to be honest, I don't know. Emily might have more insight into this. Yeah, in other words, I have to confess if I, it, it's actually an interesting question. Uh, I guess if someone were to come in and say, I want to become a rabbi, but I'm a Christian or a Muslim, we might say, well maybe you ought to undergo a process of conversion before you come in. We've never really had this issue as far as I'm aware. We do have students who are patrilineally descended, (coughs) who we do accept uh, as Jews. What has been interesting, a number of them, during their time of study at Hebrew Union, have gone to conservative or modern orthodox rabbis, and undergone a conversion. But that is simply their own choice. We don't demand that in any way, but I know at least four students who, in fact, did this. And to some degree, it's a pastoral issue about their own view of themselves. I mean, you may know some of them, but it's been interesting for me to see it. But I don't think we... uh, I've never been aware, because usually when someone applies, we talk to them about their Jewish background, the work they've done in the community. Uh, I just don't think it's ever come up in the way that you've uh, asked. Hi, Rabbi. Hi. It doesn't equate to me with the 50 plus percent rate of intermarriage. Yeah, it's higher. It doesn't. Let's, oh, okay. Uh, how does that reflect in any way the rising anti-Semitism? The more families... I don't have to say anything. Yes, okay. So I think I mentioned this earlier today, but I didn't mention it in this lecture. Um, Most of us, I mean, I'm 72 years old. This is a Judaism I grew up on. Every holiday has a common theme. The common theme is they don't like us, they tried to kill us we <laughs> survived and won, let's eat <laughs> Jews have grown up with, now I'll be an academic again with what I would call a lachrymose view of Jewish history namely, or to quote the Talmud Soneit, Yaakov. non-Jews hate Jews in the 1980s the Gallup poll did a survey of Caucasian Christians in this country and they were asked the question how would you feel if your child married a Jew? Four choices I'd be enthusiastically happy two, I'd be very happy and have no objection three, I wouldn't be happy but I'd accept it and four, I would hate it so this is an interesting question to ask in an audience like this How many people do you think said I'd be enthusiastic if my child married a Jew? Less than 10%. Less than 10%. Okay, it was 22%. What percentage do you think said I wouldn't go out of my way, but I'd be very happy if my child married a Jew? What? 66%. 88% of white Christian Americans said They'd be happy or enthusiastically happy if their children married a Jew. You cannot get, this was the point I was trying to make, you cannot get a 70% intermarriage rate if the non-Jewish community doesn't see the Jews as acceptable. What it does mean, and this would be interesting today, for example, in the Pew study, Everyone, like these 8 to 9 million people, were asked, are you proud of being Jewish? 93% of people of Jewish ancestry, these are people who might call themselves Christian, said, I'm proud of being Jewish. That would not have been the case in my parents' generation where there would have been a greater degree of embarrassment. And I don't know what it would be today because of all the public outbursts and manifestations of anti-Semitism but what I do want to say to you is that Jews are overwhelmingly acculturated into this world we live in. Jews worry about everything. Maybe rightfully, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean someone's not out to get you. Um, So why is the impeachment of Trump occurring? Well, it's the Jews. Nadler uh, and Schiff. Uh, But the reality is, and when You know, various Shandas occur. The Jews are always very, very upset over it. But the reality is it doesn't seem to have quite the impact that we Jews think it has. So I don't know the answer here. You'd do better to have someone like my friend Deborah Lipstadt come and speak. Because the reality is, I can only tell you, Jews still remain highly, highly accepted in our culture. Look, we had two presidential candidates who both have children-in-laws who are Jewish. I mean, both President Trump and Secretary Clinton, their children married Jews. Uh, Trump's grandchildren go to an Orthodox day school in Washington, DC. Jared Kushner and Ivanka's kids. I don't know what to make of all this, <laughs> but I can tell you it's a reality of the world we live in, and it is not the way most of us were raised to think about. The role of Jews in our culture uh, anti-Semitism is an incredibly complex issue, and I don't know if the figures would be today what they were 10, 20, and 30 years ago but they may not be quite as bad as we Jews think and again, I don't know if you have someone like Deborah Cumming, but she would be much better to speak on this than I would be maybe I'll take two to three questions great, now great,
0: great. Uh, You've spoken a bit about
1: uh, the the, the work that we need to be doing on people who are outside the Jewish identity coming in. But I'm curious what response or responses you might have
0: to people who we would identify as Jewish who have converted to another religion and still claim a Jewish uh, foot in the Jewish identity world. Or with people who identify as Messianic Jews and how we navigate that particular uh, (coughs) uh,
1: Great question. By
0: the way, this is Rabbi Brody. He's a new conservative rabbi in the East Valley, so welcome to
1: town. (laughs) He's going to do that in probably
0: another
1: year. So here I have to say, this is just my own view of that. I am uh, particularly open, I think, and inclusive to virtually anyone who would want to embrace Judaism whether born Jewish or not Jewish someone in my opinion who accepts Jesus as Messiah and there may be someone here tonight who stands in that category has for me moved beyond the pale of the Jewish community that doesn't mean halachically they might not be Jewish in certain instances Uh, (laughs) I won't even tell you what I well I actually have, I have a very negatively visceral reaction. Uh, probably shouldn't tell this story. It's not the best story about me. But I was once in New York, and I was actually with my daughters. I have three. And there was a Jew for Jesus there who was attempting to proselytize. And I just said, look, I know you have love in your heart for me i don 't really have that for you uh, for me, this kind of affirmation goes beyond goes beyond uh, what I see uh, as peoplehood. I could not love my uh, christian friends i don 't think more than I do. but here I do see a boundary that 's been drawn by two thousand years of uh, of history. I have no uh, You know, personally, they should be, they're free to lead their own life. I mean, I wouldn't attempt to coerce them one way or the other. But for me, an affirmation of Jesus as Messiah goes beyond uh, what the Jewish community uh, should be expected to accept in terms of inclusion. So again, I'm not making an halachic ruling, but for me, religiously and sociologically, they've gone beyond the bounds of the community.
0: Assuming that the Orthodox
1: community does not change its attitude in terms of uh, right. descent, uh, what do you see happening two or three generations? Well, there? it's a, a great lot. question. In terms of who, who is a Jew <coughs> among the so-called Jewish community, who looks at someone else and says, "I will accept the fact right. that that individual is Jewish." What? Yeah. So, did everyone here? In other words, the issue is. Given the kinds of divisions you have in the Jewish community between a great deal of the particularly ultra-Orthodox community and the rest of the Jewish people, uh, I suspect what will happen is that, uh, and I know this is the case, probably increasingly in elements of the Orthodox world, they don't think of many of a number of Jews who are part of the Reform, Conservative, Renewal worlds as being Jewish. Having said that, There probably is relatively little in her marriage even now amongst these groups. I'm not happy about that, but that probably tends to be the case. The other reality is that... uh, You know, people predicted a great cataclysm when the patrilineal decision was affirmed by the uh, reform movement, and the reality is it's been... You know, people like Yitz Greenberg and others have indicated that... uh, it's kind of amazing how little uh, debate it has engendered. A number of my orthodox colleagues tell me the following. Uh, A number who are graduates of Yeshiva University and they go out to serve in communities like Atlanta, New Orleans, and elsewhere. They're not prepared to say that patrilineally descended Jews uh, who have not had conversion, obviously, in an orthodox ceremony, are Jewish. But they do recognize them in some way as being in quotes, this is my term, not theirs, sociologically Jewish. What does that mean? One friend of mine who was a rabbi in New Orleans said, I don't know quite what to do about this. I grew up in an ultra-orthodox world. Now I'm serving in New Orleans. There are a lot of members of the reformed, conservative, and Jewish community who participate fully, they educate their children Jewishly. They support the state of Israel. They give to the United Jewish Appeal. He said, I don't quite recognize them halakhically as Jews and would not officiate at their weddings. But he said, I can't quite say they're not Jewish. Uh, there is a rabbi named Chaim who, uh who is a Moroccan rabbi. He was a member of the Knesset uh, in Shas. And... Uh, he wrote two books called Zera Yisrael and Macor Yisrael, this notion of seed of Israel. In Israel, there's a tremendous problem. There are almost four to 500,000 people who live as Jews in Israel, who are indistinguishable from any secular Jews in Israel, but who not, do not possess halachic status as Jews. Remember, under the law of return... So Jewish status operates in two ways in the state of Israel. One is that matters of marriage and divorce are determined by the rabbinate. <laughs> but under the Chok HaShavut, under the law of return, people are considered Jewish or have the right to Israeli citizenship as Jews who have even one Jewish grandparent. I won't do the whole lecture here. By the way, a classic case involved David Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion's son fought for a British Jewish regiment, Amos Ben-Gurion, during World War II. He was wounded, he recovered in the hospital. How many of you know this story? So Amos Ben-Gurion, while he was recovering, fell in love with his nurse. Think of a farewell to arms. What do you think the catch was? She wasn't Jewish. So here you have the son of the prime minister of the state of Israel, falling in love with a non-Jewish woman. She was converted to Judaism by a rabbi named Joachim Prinz, who was a German liberal rabbi in London. Rabbi Prinz then not only converted uh, Ben-Gurion's daughter-in-law, but performed the wedding. Uh, Some of you may know there's been a film done on him uh, at the march... On Washington in 1963, Rabbi Prinz was the warm-up act for a man named Dr. Martin Luther King. He was a great proponent of social justice. The family then goes back to Israel. They have a daughter. So here you have the granddaughter of the prime minister of the state of Israel, who grows up in the state of Israel. Her grandfather is the prime minister. She serves in the Israeli army. She then prepares to marry. She marries, meets a boy in the army. Now the question is, is she a Jew? Who was a Jew? Her grandfather is prime minister. She's grown up in Israel her whole life. Her language is Hebrew. She served in the army. And her mother's been converted by a non-Orthodox rabbi with mikvah. From the standpoint of most secular Israelis, from the standpoint of the reform and conservative movements, in terms of her own identity, everyone would see her as a Jew. But there's one group that did not, and that was the Orthodox rabbinate. So when she wanted to be married, they initially would not give her a marriage license. Now, you remember animal... I was about to say animal house, but I meant animal (laughs) farm... Everyone's equal, but some animals are more equal than others. She was denied a marriage license. The next day, she was taken to the mikveh by the Orthodox rabbinate. It was either in Tel Aviv or Haifa. She took an immersion, and then she was allowed her marriage license. Uh, had she said, you know what, I'm not going to go to the mikveh because I'm already Jewish, it would have created a tremendous crisis in the state of Israel. But the irony is David Ben-Gurion, who agreed to this, his own grandchild was affected by the decision he made to enshrine uh, Orthodox rabbinic control of the chief rabbinate over matters of conversion. The issue that you have in Israel now and the way it has an impact, and think of a Vigdor Lieberman. Uh, who, of course, is very, very right-wing on issues in relationship to the West Bank and Palestinians. But he has a community. There are literally hundreds of thousands of Russians in Israel who do not possess halachic status as Jews. Rabbi Amsalam wrote this book, Zera Yisrael, to say, we should just convert these people wholesale. They live as Jews. They serve in the Israeli army. And otherwise, we're going to have this division within Israel. The reality is you may have this division, but interestingly, there are a number of Orthodox rabbis in Israel who have taken quite lenient stances on this, not in the United States, but in Israel, because of this demographic time bomb, so to speak. And again, if you want to read about all this, read the book that Danny Gordas and I wrote, where we have a long section on how Israeli authorities have dealt with this... uh, Issue. I don't know. I have odd interest. I don't know. But anyway, I like reading this stuff. Uh, Any more questions? Okay.
0: I'll take the privilege of the last question if I may. Thank you so much. You
1: can also have the last answer.
0: (laughs) Uh, So we have one challenge, which is in the more traditionalist elements of orthodoxy, a discomfort with universalism, right? That in some way universalism threatens my particularism. Yes. Uh, But we have the opposite problem where, in liberal Judaism, in some way, the particularism threatens the universalism. So I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the Judaism. And and that's generational, too. Uh, So for younger Jews, feeling like if I'm publicly Jewish in some ways, that that will discredit my uh, universalism. And so I wonder how philosophically, not practically, but how philosophically, do we address that challenge of holding holding on to those two? It's kind of like that old joke. If you ask uh, you ask someone what religion they are, and they pause awkwardly and say Buddhist, you know they're a Jew, right? So <laughs> well,
1: go to go to any Unitarian church.
0: <laughs> right, Unitarian. So so I wonder, like, with younger Jews who feel universalism and feel a slight connection to Judaism, how do we think about it not being a problem for Judaism to inform their universalism?
1: Yeah, I mean. Listen, these are major kinds of issues. In the non-Orthodox world in particular, we are completely oriented towards uh, a universalistic thrust in relationship to the Jewish religious tradition. I mean, frankly, Rabbi, when you asked me the question, I'm uncomfortable ever saying there's a boundary. But I do think there are boundaries. I don't know how you have any community where there's no border whatsoever. I mean, an irony I had, I mean, this isn't quite to your question, I have one year of experience as a pulpit rabbi. Uh, Again, I don't know what it's like in most Christian seminaries, but at Hebrew Union College, uh, we do our best to see to it that none of our rabbis who teach have any pulpit experience at all. (laughs) Part of the reason for that is we never... And Emily, this may disqualify you one day. We don't ever want reality to interfere with our theories about how Jewish life ought to be be led. Uh, So there are always problems in this. But in my one year in a pulpit in Port Washington, we did have the following case, which is quite ironic. Uh, A member of our congregation fell in love with a young woman who had been raised as a Christian but it turned out her grandmother matrilineally was Jewish, the mother had converted to Christianity and the girl had been raised as a Christian she fell in love with a Jewish boy from our congregation and they wanted to be married and the senior rabbi, Rabbi Rosenberg and I had to decide what would we do, well in the end we, did, we said well halachically she is Jewish, this was the 1970s But she hadn't been raised as a Jew so we decided she would have to undergo minimally the same period of study we would expect from a convert. But then what happened she went, this is the irony of it all, she went to the orthodox rabbi in Great Neck who just performed the wedding. The orthodox rabbi said she's halachically Jewish and he just did the wedding and so it got swept up from under us, but you've asked a different kind of question I mean, the reality is, and here is the problem you know, when I go to speak at a place like Yeshiva University and meet with their students, most of them have 12 years of Jewish day school, a year in Israel four years at Yeshiva College, they are part of what I would call a thick Jewish culture Most of the students of places like JTS, the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, Hebrew College in Boston, and Hebrew Union have not been raised in a thick Jewish culture. It's part of the challenge we have when we educate students because we want them to know this vast tradition. And some of them, some of the things we teach, they could have learned the details, the data, when they were really much younger, if they'd had a more traditional education. And if that's true of our rabbinic students, how much more so of Jews in the larger world. Think of the Jews that you know in Phoenix, Arizona. So the question is, how do you allow them to see that Judaism has something relevant to say to their lives? In other words, when I talked about modernity in the beginning of this lecture for people like my grandparents, the issue was not (laughs) how can I be Jewish again, to ask my grandparents who were speaking Yiddish how can you be Jewish they are Jewish that is who they were we move and here I quote Franz Rosenzweig the great German Jewish thinker we have a Judaism in reverse order We move from the periphery back to the center. The reality is the people who began the reform movement were very learned Jewishly. Their issue was, how do I become modern? Our people are modern. The question is, how do you make them Jewish? And part of the way is you need to teach them the richness of what Jewish life can promise. Here, I think Chabad, Aish, and other outreach Jewish groups are right. You don't need lectures on Shabbos. You need people to observe Shabbos. Bring them to a Jewish home and let them see it. The question is, what richness will that bring into their life? And then secondly, can Judaism speak to important issues in their life? If all the issues that you deal with, ritual issues that do help enrich your life, I want to be careful how I say this, but if the issue is, what's the length of your tzitzis? Many people who've grown up in a thin Jewish culture won't see Judaism as being particularly relevant to the world they live in. Tell them that if they're dealing with public events, how to feed the, uh, the hungry and clothe the naked, that Judaism has something to say to them about significant issues in the public square, it may well bring them back in significant ways. The issue that I haven't talked about tonight, and I don't know quite what to do with this, uh, my whole life is entwined with the state of Israel. I cannot even begin to describe what Israel means to me. Uh, I always thought I would make Aliyah, and maybe I still will, who knows? Probably not, because my children are here, but... uh, The liberalism of most American Jews, and I observed this on campus with the students. I don't know if I even want to go here. It's not a good way to end the evening. But some of the challenges involved in uh, Israeli occupation of the West Bank, in progressive circles in America, uh, it creates a problem of Jewish identity for, I think, a significant number of younger Jews. I don't want to exaggerate this. And again, bring someone else. It's another whole topic. That's why it's not the best way to bring it up. But it does mean that in progressive circles, which many of our children are part of, uh, this need to have them identify uh, with the particularity of Jewishness is a gigantic... uh, challenge. Let me just, I want to end on a positive note, or at least a relatively positive one. Here, I I think of the work of one of the greatest Jewish thinkers of the 20th century was a man named Shimon Ravidovich. R-A-W-I D-O-W-I-C-Z. Professor Ravidovich was born in Eastern Europe uh, and he came ultimately to America as the first head of the Near Eastern and Judaic Studies Department at Brandeis University. Uh, When people ask, who do you want to be when you grow up? I'd like to be Shimon Ravidovich. He knew everything about Jewish tradition and he knew everything about Western thought. He wrote a book called The Ever-Dying People. And in this work, The Ever-Dying People, you might have heard it cited before, he pointed out that every generation of Jews thought that it was Shearita Paleta, we are the last saving remnant. Après moi le deluge. After me, it's all going to hell. But he pointed out that what's interesting is the Jews have thought this for millennia. And because there were always a number of Jews who acted so as to keep the Jewish people alive despite these challenges, we have a people who have gone from Sinai until now. And that's why in here I live with my faith as a rabbi, I pray that 100 years from now and actually think there'll be a Valley Beit Midrash and that someone like me will be coming here and speaking on comparable kinds of issues assuming so the climate doesn't destroy us. I can't be completely optimistic. Uh, and I want to just thank you all.